Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to come and ask two things of you. Um, Lord, you say that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of both joints and marrow, Lord, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And so, Lord, I just pray that you would use this text, one that many of us know, Lord, and in, in a fresh new way, that that blade would be especially sharp to everyone in this room and that you would convict and that you would change thoughts, that you would change hearts here tonight through, through, this, through this text, Lord, and through my broken words. And then, Lord, I ask secondly that you would just kind of just allow me to be a vessel and that really I would be sidelined and that your message, your truth, would impact everyone here, God. Um, I just want to lift high your truth, God. So I just pray that you would sanctify these believers here in your truth and that you would draw unbelievers to yourself, Lord. So would you be glorified through the preaching of your word? This is my prayer, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So listen to these words of Jesus. Just listen. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, if I were to offer a guess, I would bet most of you in this room would consider yourself to be a Christian. And I would bet that there's probably a few of you here who would say, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm just coming to check things out. And if that's true, I just want to say, you're, you're welcome here. And I'm really thrilled that you're here to, for this message and to hear this text tonight. But I think it's a fairly safe assumption to say that most of you consider yourself a Christian. You would say you are indeed a Christ follower. But I wonder, just looking back on the text I just read, how many of you would say, I, de I deny myself daily in following Christ. Every day I take up a cross for following Christ. I am constantly losing my life for the sake of Jesus Christ. And so I wonder how many of you would say that. And if you can't say those things to at least some degree, then I wonder if Jesus would say, you are indeed one of his followers. Remember these words of Jesus when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So the question I've been wrestling with, and I think this text will deal with, can one be a Christian and not submit to Christ's lordship in their life, Christ's reign in their life? Can one be a Christian and give no thought or attention to obeying Christ, to following Christ? Can one have a conversion experience at one point in their life and then go on to disregard Christ and then expect to be welcomed into heaven one day? That's the question before us. Another way of saying this, is Jesus' call to follow him easy or is it hard? Is it, is it light or is it heavy? What is it? In, I think in using the word that the text used tonight, is it really narrow? And I believe Jesus answers this question in the text before us tonight. And so we'll again go to the Sermon on the Mount, where I know you have been studying in your community groups, most of you. So I, I, I think this is, I'm just thrilled that you're studying this passage with me and you're familiar with it. And I just want to remind everyone in the room that 
what we, what we are studying, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is a sermon that came straight from the lips of Jesus. The greatest preacher who ever lived preached a sermon and it was recorded in the book of Matthew. And I would say it's the greatest sermon of Jesus. It's the most complete, full sermon of Jesus and it's been recorded for us. And so all scripture is God-breathed and inspired and perfect in every way. But there's certain texts that require something different. They require more importance. And we can't miss over them. We can't just read them lightly. And I think the Sermon on the Mount is that. It's one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. And I would say, especially chapter 7, is the most shocking passage in the entire Bible. What Jesus says there is just so radical. Um, and I think you'll, you'll see that as I read it. Um, so I, tonight, while we're going to look at this sermon, I want to read with you the conclusion of Jesus' sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would, look in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 7, and we're just going to read together uh, verses 13 through 27. So if you would, I'll just read and follow along with me. It says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness." Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell And the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and its fall was great. So I'm sure after reading this passage, you realize that there's a certain uh, seriousness that we must bring to this passage. No chipper sermon here will do tonight, unfortunately. This is a, a shocking passage. It requires a heavy deep, serious, somber message, not a lighthearted one, not upbeat. The passage, this passage teaches us about the most important thing in life, and that is what will be said to you when you stand before the Lord of glory? 
Will, you be, will, will Jesus Christ say, say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant, or will he say, depart from me, I never knew you? Because I will tell you, that is the most important thing in this life. And as I mentioned earlier, because we are dealing with matters of such importance, heaven and hell, and where we'll end up in eternity, it demands of me that I must get this passage right. And so in interpreting the Bible, one thing we always must do is we must read something in context. Context is king. And so we must look at the context together tonight because I think it's important. So I know you've been doing this, but again, I want to look at the context of this sermon. So if you would, look at chapter 4. And we'll start in 23. Just to see who's there, who's listening. Uh, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every, every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among his people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, those who were suffering various diseases and pains, demonics, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Diacopolis and, Jer and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and after he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened up his mouth and began to teach them. And then he begins his sermon. So I want to highlight one thing here in verse 5. In verses 5 and 1 and 2, look what he says here. He says, Jesus saw the crowds, and he went up on the mountain. And then he sat down, and his disciples came to him. His disciples came to him. And then the next line, and he began, he opened his mouth, and he began to teach them. Them being a pronoun, pointing back to another noun. That other noun is his disciples. Jesus is teaching his disciples. So there's a crowd but Jesus is specifically teaching his disciples here. And that's important. So the crowds are overhearing. We don't want to neglect the crowds. They're there, but Jesus is teaching his disciples. And so it's somewhat like tonight. Most of you are disciples, but there's some that are kind of like the people in the crowd. They're, they're listening in on a conversation that Jesus is teaching his disciples. And, you're, and so some of you are like those in the crowd here tonight. But I want to be clear, and I think Matt spent some, spent some time in his sermon a couple weeks ago expressing this, but this Sermon on the Mount is for believers. And this, we need to be certain of this. This message that Jesus is for you, believer. And so just to prove this to you again, I want to look back at some points throughout the sermon. So if you'd start and just look quick with, quickly with me at 5.11. It says, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and fa falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So people persecuting you because of your faith in Jesus. This is to believers. He's speaking to believers. Verse, verse 12 there, rejoice and be glad because your reward is in heaven. Well, we know who goes to heaven, right? Believers go to heaven. He's speaking to believers. He says, next verse, you are the salt of the earth. You are set apart. You are distinct from this earth, believer. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Again, Jesus speaking to believers. Verse 47, if you skip ahead, he, he says this, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? So he's speaking to believers. If you only greet your brothers, what are you doing more than anyone else? So again, speaking to believers. 6, 9, he says, pray then in this way. And he starts out, 
our Father who is in heaven. And he's telling his, his disciples, this is how we pray to our Father. And so Jesus keeps moving. 631 and 32 says here, Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear for clothing? And he says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things outside the camp. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Again, your heavenly Father, Jesus consistently speaking to believers. And so I will say again, the primary application of this sermon, or Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, should be directed at believers. Secondarily, to the onlookers, to the crowd, but primarily to the believers. And because this, I think this point is necessary as we underst- for understanding our text tonight, I just want to go back through church history and look at uh, what other men have said about this throughout church history. And, and really, it's what it just means I want to quote a few dead guys to help you see that I'm just not alone in this. But um, so the question is, who is the Sermon on the Mount for? And so I want to go back to the fourth century to a guy named John Christosom, who was a famous preacher um, in the city of Antioch. And he said this in regards to the Sermon on the Mount, quote, let us not consider that these commandments in the Sermon on the Mount are impossible, end quote. He's saying these are possible for you. See, he believed that divine grace would empower the believer to live out the Sermon on the Mount. That's what he taught his church. Another person, Martin Luther, the catalyst to the Reformation, um, he insisted that the Sermon on the Mount said, quote, nothing about how we become Christians, but only the works and the fruit that no one can do unless he's already a Christian and in a state of grace. So Martin Luther said, you you can't do any of this unless you're born again. And it says nothing about how you become a Christian. Strong statement. The next, John Calvin, another famous Protestant um, leader in the Protestant Reformation. And he said this, about the Sermon on the Mount. It is the, it is this, it is the t- summary of Jesus' teaching that contains the doctrine of Christ which related to a devout and holy life. He said this is the doctrine of Christ about how we ought to live a holy life. And for him, it was the summary of how Christians ought to live, the Christian ethic in the Sermon on the Mount, how one would live who's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then uh, from nearly a only a, dec- uh, a century ago, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous British preacher, said this, and I love this. He says, Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and sent the Holy Spirit that you and I ought to live the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to say that again. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he sent the Holy Spirit that you and I might walk out, live the Sermon on the Mount. Furthermore, he added, Quote, it is wrong to ask anybody who's not first a Christian to try and live or practice the Sermon on the Mount. To expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again is heresy. End quote. And I fully agree with that. How, how can someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God live out this Sermon of Jesus? And one more from today, contemporary Bible scholar Richard Mayhew. He said, quote, Everything that Jesus taught that day was built upon the holy character of his righteously perfect Heavenly Father, The demand of Christ's sublime sermon is that we think, talk, and act like God, end quote. Think, act, and talk like God. That's Jesus, that's his intention here. And so the Sermon on the Mount teaches believers how they ought to live, 
how we are indeed meant to live. And hear this, this is not teaching how one becomes a believer. This is teaching how one lives as a believer. This is not teaching how one becomes justified or how one becomes saved, but how they live in light of their justification. And so I want to stress again, this is a sermon. And to help you see this, um, look with me at the beginning of it. Uh, in chapter 5, verses 3 through 16, is Jesus' introduction. And he goes through this, um, the Beatitudes, several statements like, blessed are the poor in spirit, and goes on and on. And then he moves into the body of his message, which is verses 517 through 712, where he begins to explain a superior righteousness, a righteousness that surpassed those of the Pharisees and the scribes, who were the most righteous people that anyone would know at that time. And he's saying, no, it's higher. And look what, to prove this, look at 517, and it says this, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. And I just want to point out that phrase there, law or the prophets. And then flip with me over to 7.12. It says, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus using that phrase, law and the prophets, to bookend the body of his sermon. So introduction, body, and then we come to the conclusion. And verses 13 through the end, 27, are his conclusion. And so, and I think this would be somewhat of a gear shift for Jesus. He's just laid out his entire sermon about this is the points, this is how you ought to live, and now it's time for application. He said, I've, I've instructed you about how, what it means to be my disciple, and so now the decision is what are you going to do? Are you going to follow me or not? And he said, he doesn't want us to sit there and admire his sermon and say, oh, what a lofty ethic this is. He wants us to practice it. He doesn't want our praise. He wants practice. He doesn't want our commendation. He wants this to be carried out in our lives. And so one commentator called this, it's make up your mind time on the mountain. Are you going to follow him or not? And so that's, because that's where Jesus is going, that's where I'm going. And my question for you is, will you submit and follow Christ? Will you follow Christ? Will Christ be the king of your life? And so the main idea of my message here tonight, and I believe the main idea of my text, is the path of discipleship is extremely narrow. Extremely narrow. Jesus commands us to make this for us to make the Sermon on the Mount the Sermon of our life. And by that I mean the Sermon on the Mount should become how we ought to live. As believers, we are called to a narrowness of life as we follow Christ and live out the Sermon on the Mount. And, I, and as I thought about it, this is the epitome of a hard saying of Jesus. And I thought there was three ways why this is a hard saying when we'll read here. For one, it's hard to swallow. This is just, well, it's just hard to inter internalize. It, can't, it makes you say, can it really be so, Jesus? And two, I think it's hard to understand because it's so common, we often forget the context and we miss it. And three, most, it's hard because it's so hard to carry out. It's so hard to live out. And so again, Jesus speaking to believers 
And I don't want us to sidestep and go, oh, now here he's speaking to unbelievers. No, he's still speaking to believers when we read these words. Let's look together at Matthew 7, 13 and 14. And he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So my first point tonight, first of three points, this is fairly simple, the command. I want to look at the command of Jesus in verse 13a. He says, enter through the narrow gate. And so the first thing we see is that this is a command. It's an imperative. And there's an implied subject of you. You must enter. But the question that might come to your mind immediately is, well, enter what? What are we to enter? I mean, it says enter through the narrow gate, but we know that the gate is not the destination. You enter through the gate into something. You came through a door into this room. So what are we to enter? What is he calling us, commanding us, inviting us to enter? Well, I think Jesus used, Jesus used that word enter three times in this sermon. Once here, and then tw- twice in two other places. The first is in 520, and I think it gives us a clue about what it is. It lays it out pretty clearly. In verse 520, he says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And then look with me again at 721. We see the word used again here, enter. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we know we're entering the kingdom of heaven. That's the command. Enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the next question that comes to my mind is, where is this gate to the kingdom of heaven that we must go through? Where is this gate? And although I believe the gate is metaphorical to a sen- in a sense, if the actual gate existed, it would be in the presence of Jesus on judgment day. And I'll tell you why I think that. It's been Matthew 7, 21, 21 through 23. So look with me there again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me, get this, on that day. What's that day referring to? Judgment day. He's saying, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. But on that day, he's going to say, no, you're not entering. So I get the, the gate is there on judgment day. So I want to make it clear, this gate is not conversion. This gate is out in front of all of us. We're progressing to this gate. And so the next thing I want to point at, look out here is he says, enter through the narrow gate. He uses the definite article, the. There is one narrow gate. There's one way that leads to the kingdom of heaven. There's one entrance into heaven. And he says it's narrow. And this is the same word that the old King James translation called straight. And not straight like straight as a line, but straight as in difficult. The old word, it's a quality of narrowness. It's a, often you hear, hear of like a, a straight in the sea, a, a narrow passageway in the, in the sea. That's what this sort of straight means. Like, like we get the word straight jacket or straight laced, meaning for someone who's morally rigid. It's, it's constrictive. 
It's a, it's a tight passageway. It's narrow. You come in all alone. There's, it's so tight that no one goes with you. You can't go in a crowd through this gate. You come one by one through this gate, and you must break from the pack to go through this gate. You come in all alone. It's tight. And this is completely contrary to popular belief. And I'm sure I'm not really telling you anything new. I mean, the current mantra of our day is believe whatever you want. I mean, how many times have we heard, oh, you know, I think God is like a mountain. And if you take this path, that's great. I'll take this path and we'll all get there. And Jesus just cuts through that and says, no, it's a narrow gate. And you have to enter this narrow gate. And so this is just absolutely contrary to everything the world teaches, everything. Postmodernism, relativism, it's just contrary. And Jesus gives us this command very clearly, enter through the narrow gate. Next point I want to say is Jesus points out the common way. And he says, continuing in verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. So Jesus warns, gives a caution about the common way of mankind. And these are for all of those who reject his teaching, who, re who reject his call for discipleship. And so the common way, first of all, it ends in a wide gate. So we now we know that there's two gates in front of Jesus there on on Judgment Day, and the, the, the other, there's a narrow one, and now there's a wide one. And that means it's inclusive, it's inviting, and it's actually the default way. If you've never chosen the narrow gate, you're still on the, the wide, you're still headed for the wide gate. You go there whether you like it or not. It's like gravity pulling people in. The next, the common gate is easy. You travel by a broad path. This word broad in my version describing the path is a combination of the word um, wide and spacious. I mean, it's, it's the path of least resistance. It's roomy. It's the comfortable way. It's the way of moral latitude and laziness. Do whatever you want. Live however you want. It's, it's the way of absolute moral freedom. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. This is the way of cheap grace. It's the way that says, I believed in Jesus when I was a kid. I'm going to do whatever I want right now. I want to live however I want. Someday I'll come back to going to church. This, that's, this, that's this path, the broad path. Cheap grace. And notice where it leads. This common way leads to destruction. And and. Don't, don't miss this. This is a reference to hell. It leads to destruction. Spiritual disaster is where this is going. And it speaks of utter ruin. Eternal punishment. One commentator I read said, the path of moral laxity is thus a dead-end road in the most frightening sense. Horrifying punishment is the destination to which the world insanely rushes ahead. That's where this road goes, the broad road. And notice the, the common way is filled with people. It says many travel this way, many go this way. And that's again why this statement is hard. It's Jesus, is, this, is there really many? And I think we know this true. 
I mean, how many, how many people go to MSU? And there's how many people in this room? Many. Many are not in this room. Many are out there. And maybe lastly, I would say, this common way requires no effort. It's an undemanding, untroublesome, set your own course, plot your own way, go your own way. That's what this way is. No trouble, no sweat, no problem. This is the default way, the common way. And Jesus warns us about that. Third point. First, he gives us the command. Then he cautions us about the common way. Then he says, he tells us about the costly way. For he says, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. So now he goes back to describing the way that leads to that narrow gate. And when it describes narrow gate here in the beginning, it says, my version says, for the gate is small. And although it uses the word small, it's really the same word that was used in 713, first time to describe the gate, narrow. It's a small, narrow gate. And again, it's exclusive. And then it goes on to say, the way is narrow. And this word I think could maybe better be translated hard. ESV uses it as hard. It's a hard, difficult way. It's constricting. Um, Travel by, traveling on this road is morally difficult. It's an oppressive road to follow. It's afflicting. And and there's a sense which this word carries. It's it's an afflicting road where you, the people who travel on this road do things like cut off their hands as they fight sin. It's a road of plucking out eyes and cutting off hands as you follow sin, or as you fight sin in your life. And on this road, you must walk straight, refusing to turn to the right or the left. There's no room for moral deviation on this road. It's restrictive. It's morally and ethically confining. There's there's bars and guidelines and guardrails set out for you on this path, By every word that Jesus said, as we seek to apply his commands, they line the road for us. And notice this where this costly way leads. It leads to life, eternal life, a portal into heaven. We take the road, the narrow road, through the narrow gate into heaven to be with the Lord one day. And notice again, the costly way, on this costly way, there are few. And again, this is why this makes it so hard to internalize. Because I I don't know about you, if you've ever been in a point where you just kind of prayed and said, Lord, is there really just so few? When you see friends who claim to be Christians falling away and going after the things of the world, and you begin to look around and be, oh, there's so few left. And I've had several points like this in my life. First, when I first became a believer at MSU here and I was on the football team, and I, I literally thought, I'm the only guy on this football team who is trying to follow Christ at all. And I, and, I th- and I said, I think I'm the only believer on this team. And it was true. Looking back through today, I, at that time, there was no one else walking with the Lord. And I was like, can it really be true? One out of 90 walking with the Lord. Another time when I was living in Turkey, I was living in a city of a million people and there were 45 believers. 45. And I just been, Lord, is it, is it, can it be true? And still I wrestle with that here. And I mean, we're in such a blessed place to see, I mean, all the believers in this room, but this, is a, this is not the norm. This is an outlier to have so many believers here together following. It's, a, it's an always a few. 
This is the way. And notice if we go back to those verses in 721 to 23, he says, many of those who emphatically declare to him on that day, Lord, Lord, he's gonna end up saying to them, I never knew you, depart from me. So even among the so-called Christians, there are many that won't make it. So it's very few. And notice here, he says a little different. He changes his verb at the end here. And he, he says, there are few who find it. Meaning that the, this narrow way, you, don't just, you just don't trip and make it through this gate. You have to search for it and find it. It's a, it's a, it requires diligent effort in following Christ down this narrow way. It's a, it's a path of going against the flow in every direction. It's swimming upstream. And so we follow Jesus down this narrow path, the path that he tread, and we fix our eyes on him who went before us as we diligently to work to apply this sermon that he just preached. And let me remind you why this is so hard and costly, this Sermon on the Mount. And I would say it's not because of persecution or loneliness or any, it's, it's hard for one specific reason, because it's hard to apply the Sermon of the Mount to our lives. And let me just remind you of some of the things that Jesus said, some of the, the things Jesus commands of us. In verse five, three, I'll just go through. He says, have a poor spirit, a humble attitude in everything. Mourn over remaining sin in your life. Be gentle, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Show mercy to all. Be set apart. Be the salt of the earth. Be a light that draws other people, draws onlookers to the Father. Possess a true righteousness that exceeds that of the, more, of the Pharisees, the superficial Pharisees. And it looks at obeying without looking for loopholes. Not external conformity, but internal transformation of the heart. Focused on manifesting the divine character in your life rather than following commands. It means you fight murderous, murderous anger in your heart. It means you fight and radically kill all lust in your heart. And it's, he says, in every and all circumstance, speak the truth. No lying ever. And then he says, rather than retaliate, bless those who hurt, who hurt you. Forget yourself while you love your neighbor, and not even that, love your enemies. And then in summary of chapter 5, he says, imitate the perfection of God. In verse 6, he goes on, he says, fight all desire to be seen as righteous before men. Any desire to be noticed for your good, for your good deeds. And he says, give, but let your giving be done in secret. Don't let people see you doing it. He says, pray, but likewise pray in secret so you're not trying to let people see you pray and be spiritual. He says, fast, but likewise don't let people see you fast. He says, treasure heavenly things while forsaking all worldliness and earthly possessions. He says, never worry about anything, but trust in the Father. And then he says, remove all logs from your own eyes so that you may help your brother remove the sinful speck of dust from his eye, from his eye to help him overcome. And he says, seek your father in prayer for every good thing. And then 
he ends with the golden rule. Treat others the way you want to be treated. That's his command. And that's just, there's more there. There's a life worth of commands to obey here. And that's why he says, he turns to application and he says, enter through the narrow gate. You got to live this out now. And if you say, but Jesus, this is too hard. I can't do those things. I can't live that. It's just too hard. You set the bar too high, Jesus. It's too narrow. I can't live out the Sermon on the Mount. Well, then I believe Jesus would say to you, would I ask you to do something that I don't give you the grace and the power to do? But if you say, Lord, I'd rather not do those things. You know, my life is pretty good right now, and I don't think I want to go that way. I think I'm, I think I'm pretty content just, just pretending to be a Christian, you know, just one day a week. Well, then I think Jesus would say to you, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Meaning, essentially, you shouldn't be calling me Lord, Lord. And so, hear me, believer, if you are truly born again, you are called to tread this narrow path. And the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ will empower you every step of the way. So, and if you refuse to follow Jesus' commands here, to follow his life, then be warned, hear his warning here, that you're traveling down a broad path that leads to a wide gate that will end up in eternal destruction. So just two points of application. The first is to the believer. Again, let the Sermon on the Mount be the sermon of your life. Take this, book, take this sermon of Jesus and say, Lord, help me apply this. Help me live this. Help me walk this out in everything I do. Help me to hate sin in my life. I want to be righteous. I want to follow you. One commentator I, said, I read said this, the Sermon on the Mount is a roadmap that marks out the narrow path that leads to life in God's kingdom. Those who ignore the roadmap do so to their own peril. Use it as a roadmap in your life. And this is just, I mean, we just see this all over throughout Scripture. First uh, John 2.6, first I read this morning, the one who says he abides in him ought to walk as he walked. 2 Peter 2.21 says, For you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, he leaving you an example to follow in his steps. That's what we do as Christians. We follow Christ, our King. And again, I, I want to quote another verse. A verse of Paul in the book of Titus. He said this, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, and I think he means believers, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope in the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. That's what we're called to. He wants a people that are zealous for good weeks, a people for his own possession who look like Christ. And that's, what, that's why they first called them Christians, because they were little Christ. They looked just like Christ. 
And that's what we're supposed to be like. And maybe a second application to non-Christians here, and maybe even to those who may call themselves a Christians, but for some time you've been, you haven't been even caring about Jesus' commands in your life. You've been disregarding what he said. Can I just for a moment pull back the curtains of this life? I mean, strip away every futile thing, and if we boil it all down to the bare essentials, regardless of how we live this life and whatever you go on to do, one day you will stand before the Lord of glory. You will stand before Jesus Christ. And what he says to you on that day is of infinite importance. And it will, it will set the trajectory of your infinite existence, your eternal existence. The words that come out of Jesus' mouth will dictate where you spend eternity, heaven or hell, infinite joy, infinite bliss in the presence of God, or eternal destruction, eternal pain. And so maybe as one who's in the crowd, listening in on this sermon of Jesus, I think these words apply to you. Enter through the narrow gate. You have to get there. And so if, if no one else tells you in the rest of your life, hear it now, you have to get there. Enter through the narrow gate. So I beg you, submit your life to Christ. Say, you are king in my life. I want to rule. I want to follow you. Help me walk this out. Help me. Because I'll say again, unless you are born again, you will not be able to make one step of progress in applying the Sermon on the Mount. Hear Jesus' words. Follow me. Follow me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer an old Lutheran pastor from the World War II era wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And it was a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And it was really a polemic against cheap grace, thinking that you could just accept Christ in your life at one point in time, then go on to live however you want. And I want, I want you to hear these words of him. He says, the path of discipleship is narrow, and it's fairly easy to lose one's way and stray from the path, even after years of discipleship. And it's hard to find. On either side of the narrow path, deep chasms yawn. To be called to a life of extraordinary quality, to live up to it, and yet be unconscious of it, is indeed a narrow way. To confess and testify to the truth that is in Jesus, and at the same time, to love the enemies of that truth, his enemies and ours, and love them with the infinite love of Jesus, is indeed a narrow way. To believe the promise of Jesus that his, his followers shall possess the earth, and at the same time, to face our enemies unarmed and defenseless, preferring to incur injustice rather than to do wrong ourselves, is indeed a narrow way. To see the weakness and wrong in others and at the same time refrain from judging them is a narrow way. The way is unutterably hard and at every moment we are in danger of straying from it. If we regard this way as one that we follow in, a, in obedience to an external command, it is indeed an impossible way. 
But if we behold Jesus Christ going on before us step by step, we shall not go astray. But if we worry about the dangers that beset us, if we gaze at the road instead of him who who went before us, we are already straying from the path, for he himself is the way. The narrow way and the straight, straight gate is indeed Jesus Christ, the portal of salvation that he has opened up for us. And let me add one more quote from him. The only man who has a right to say that he is justified by, the, by grace alone is the man who has left all to follow Christ. So let me end where we started. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Forever wishes to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So will you lose your life for Christ from now until the day you die? That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we are just humbled by this message. Just, Lord, is it, is it really so hard? Our hearts, our hearts just want to, oh, Lord, why wouldn't it be wider? How couldn't you let more in? Why would you make us follow such a difficult path? But Lord, we know it's right. The narrowness of the road proves it's right. As we go against the flow and as we fight sin in our hearts, Lord, we know it's right. This is indeed the narrow way that leads to the narrow gate, that leads to eternity, that you have went before us down. You blazed this trail for us. And so we follow you and we recognize that we can't do one thing apart from your grace. But your grace empowers us every step of the way. And so, Lord, I just pray for every believer in this room that they would just think about the Sermon on the Mount differently. And they would hear Jesus saying to them, enter through the narrow way, enter through the narrow gate, apply this, live it out, don't disregard my words. I pray that every believer here would set the Sermon on the Mount just over their life in such a way where they would set themselves to living it. That they wouldn't be able to get past Matthew 5, 6, and 7 when they read it and not think, oh, I gotta live this out. Help me to walk this, Lord. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you here. God, you are the God of all grace and we don't save ourselves. Lord, you saved us. You are the redeeming God. And so for those who are here who haven't believed, Lord, would you call them to yourself? Would they hear your words? If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. God, and would you save them? There's nothing more important, God. We beg that you save them. For your glory, would you save them, Father? So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.